Somewhere in the world. <laughs> Welcome back to beautiful legal potland, Oregon, where it is gray with a continuing chance of wet, highs and lows near 45, plus or minus 7 degrees, as it usually is for about uh, six months, six to eight months out of the year here. But back at the uh, 26th floor condo and overlooking the south waterfront here in Portland, it's beautiful, it's green, but it is gray. We'll be here for today and tomorrow, then uh, Sunday I make my way back to the Phoenix Scottsdale area. We'll be putting in some work there at the Cannabis Radio headquarters, picking up some of the shipments that have come my way from both fans and sponsors alike while I've been out on the road. And then the next road trip is out to Aspen, Colorado for the Aspen Normal Legal Seminar, which uh, I've been uh, so privileged to go to over the past few years and have enjoyed it every time I've gone. The folks there at Normal have been very good to me, and speaking of that, we're going to do more uh, today from the Normal Conference and Lobby Days. Uh, I am just stunned. I, I got in yesterday, and, and the plane got down, and the baggage was late, and just a whole bunch of things conspired to make it so I couldn't do a show yesterday, and as I sat around and was getting some of the uh, electronic works done here uh, at the studio, uh, I was just amazed at how quickly the story of Congressman Dana Rohrabacher having outed himself as a cannabis consumer was spreading throughout the media. It's so far been picked up on CNN and the Washington Post and Fortune uh, Magazine and, and, and so many others. So uh, I am just stunned because uh, it's probably the most uh, I've ever gotten as far as any story that I've covered uh, in the media. And it just feels really good to be, have been there. We are going to play, coming up in the uh, Cannabis Radio News, we will bring you the entire remarks from Congressman Rohrabacher there at Capitol Hill on Monday morning. Uh, my recorder was right there in front of him uh, to be able to pick up his remarks, and uh, we'll bring you the uh, minute and a half or so that he spoke about his uh, love of surfing and how long he was a, uh, a surfer and how it harmed his shoulder. And he found some help with a cannabis-infused uh, uh, wax product. Also coming up on the show today, we are going to have for you a uh, new look at a study that uh, shows us uh, some information about adolescent problems with cannabis and how uh, legalization has impacted or not impacted that. Coming up in our Government at Work segment, we'll be uh, hearing from the one representative we didn't hear from on my Monday show, the first female representative in Congress to speak to the normal uh, assembly, and that was... 
Congresswoman Susan Del Bene from Washington State. So she spoke, and we've got that coming up in Government at Work. And then coming up in the Radical Rant, we're going to have for you my coverage of the Ohio medical marijuana bill. It made it through the Senate, and it's on its way to Governor John Kasich's desk. Looks like he will sign that. And so we may have the 26th medical marijuana state, but uh, I'll give you some of the details. We'll just see just how medical this medical marijuana is. All right, stay tuned. I've got a whole bunch of stuff here to fix at the studio. I'm kind of doing it live as usual. You're listening to the Russ Belville Show exclusively on CannabisRadio.com. We'll be back in two minutes. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Don't want to spend money on a night out, but don't know what to do other than watching TV or playing video games? Consider playing guitar, bass, banjo, or mandolin. The instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension, downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today, or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Get ready to hear something good about cannabis. I give you Jasmine Huff. Tell us a little bit about Jasmine. Give us the good news about how you've gotten to where you are today. Like all good children, I rejected my parents' values and, and ran off to become a capitalist in New York City and did a lot of work with an organization called Women 2.0. Looking at the cannabis industry, I said, you know what? Here we have a brand new industry. It's going to be a billion-dollar industry. And the rules of who leads this industry and who funds this industry haven't been written yet. Good news. Only on CannabisRadio.com. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, SoundCloud, Snapchat, LinkedIn, and Boise State University's 2400 baud modem bulletin board system from 1985. Welcome to CannabisRadio.com. You're listening to the live feed. The cannabis business industry is growing. Business is booming. And as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Today, it takes more than just being a good grower. Do you have the resources to market and handle this ever-changing business landscape? Let Canna Management Corporation help you grow your Canna business with our vast resources and experience to make your business a fully functional service company. Financial management, HR, sales, marketing, efficiency, and more. CMC has the experience and the expertise to improve your business and help you better meet the demands of your clients and customers. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com.
It's time for the Cannabis Radio News. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Cannabis Radio News is now available exclusively at CannabisRadio.com. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis Radio News. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, May 26, 2016. Washington, D.C. Cannabis Radio News broke the story of Representative Dana Rohrabacher admitting to use of a medical marijuana product within the past month. The story has been picked up by The Washington Post, Fortune, and CNN. Here's Rohrabacher's full admission, recorded Monday morning on Capitol Hill. I haven't been able to go surfing for a year and a half, and I've been in severe pain because I spent all this time doing that, which I can barely do now, uh, and it wore all the cartilage out here, you know. So let's say about 30 years of really good surfing, and uh, now I'm in pain because I've got arthritis. Uh, yeah, it was worth it. I'll tell you, I'd do it again, okay? <laughs> Especially if there's something we can do about it. And I went to one of these uh, uh, hemp fests or something like that. They had San Bernardino or anybody go to that. And uh, so this guy is showing me the medical things and all that. And he says, and you should try this. And it's a candle and you light the candle, and it waxes in there, it melts down, then you rub it on you, whatever you've got problems with. And you know what? I tried it about two weeks ago, and it's the first time in two years, or now first time in a year and a half, that I had a decent night's sleep because the arthritis pain was gone. And uh, now... Don't tell anybody I broke the law. <laughs> Actually, you know, bust, they'll bust down my door. And, you know, and, uh, and, and, and take whatever's inside and use it for evidence against me, whatever it is. The bottom line is that uh, I don't know. Uh, there is a, there's definitely cannabis in there. And uh, it makes sure that I can sleep now. Columbus, Ohio. By a margin of just three votes, the Ohio Senate has approved a medical marijuana bill that includes access to whole plant cannabis, but forbids smoking. Pressure was placed on the legislature by the campaign for a citizen initiative to legalize medical marijuana that included the right of patients to cultivate their own cannabis. The Senate-approved bill forbids home cannabis cultivation, but does allow dispensaries to sell actual marijuana, which may be vaporized but not smoked. Ohio will become the 26th state to legalize medical marijuana in some form, should Governor Kasich sign the bill as expected. Salem, Oregon. Any location with a liquor license is a public space where marijuana may not be consumed. That's the reminder from the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, siding with actions taken earlier this month by Portland's Office of Neighborhood Involvement to crack down on public events with free marijuana giveaways. Oregon also recently amended its Clean Air Act to include prohibitions on cannabis smoke or vapor in any public space. OLCC also forbids gifting of marijuana at any space where there is, quote, a cover charge, paid admission, donations, tip jars, raffles, fundraisers, or bartering, end quote, according to the Oregonian. Greenville, North Carolina. 
A medical doctor who is a North Carolina state representative is co-sponsoring a bill to legalize medical marijuana in the Tar Heel state. There is currently a law allowing the use of cannabidiol oil in the state, but it may sunset in 2021. The bill would allow for the use of marijuana to treat terminal or chronic illnesses and would tax marijuana at $8 per ounce. Patients would have would not have the right to cultivate their own cannabis under the bill. Washington, D.C. Since the beginning of state marijuana legalization in 2012, federal sentencing for marijuana trafficking has taken a nosedive. For three straight years, figures from the United States Sentencing Commission show a drop in prosecutions for marijuana trafficking under federal law. This does not include data on state and local prosecutions for trafficking, and there aren't enough data to conclude why the drop has occurred since four states have legalized marijuana. This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Thursday, May 26, 2016. I'm Russ Belville. Cannabis use isn't the only thing growing. So are we. Grow with us. CannabisRadio.com The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. This is Cannabis Facts from Robert Platshorn's TheSilverTour.org. Supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. In 1937, the second most prescribed medicine, marijuana, was banned. It wasn't about marijuana. The paper, oil, and chemical industries lobbied to end hemp farming. No longer labor-intensive, an acre of hemp produced more quality paper than four acres of trees. Plastics and fibers could be produced from a plant. Hemp can even produce ten times the energy of today's ethanol. As marijuana prohibition ends, many states now allow farmers to again grow hemp. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to process America's hemp crop at hempinc.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The Supreme Court is wrong on the Second Amendment. Okay, maybe you're high, too. New beginner guitars and banjos are often constructed much better than ones built before your time. Why struggle? Get a new instrument or fix the old one. The trusted professionals at the Fingerboard Extension will evaluate your instrument for free. Repairs are priced for people who work for a living. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our cannabis focus. 
Well, today in the Cannabis Focus, I've got to talk about the experience being there on Capitol Hill and breaking a national news story. It was uh, my first time doing such a thing, and uh, I, at first, didn't even recognize the magnitude of what we had been listening to since I've spoken with uh, Congressman Rohrabacher on a couple of uh, occasions and gotten the chance to interview him, and he, he's very jovial. He, he uh, er, in, earlier in his speech, talked about how he'd been a lifelong surfer and actually showed us the puka shells that he still wears underneath his suits on Capitol Hill. He's still a, a, a surfer through and through. So you, you know the guy's got to have some clue about uh, the real the realities of marijuana, that he's, he's not going to be some sort of uh, troglodyte on the issue. And in fact, as he was discussing it, he even referenced back to being a surfer and something like the worst that could happen is, you know, smoking a joint and listening to the doors. And the way he phrased it, it was very sly that, you know, he was talking about himself, that he had come up in that era and had experienced that culture. So uh, that was a really good feeling. And, and those those of us activists that were in the room, you know, just kind of were, were beaming to hear that. And it took me a second before I realized, wait a minute, this is a a sitting Republican congressman who just admitted to mar- medical marijuana use <laughs> to breaking federal law on Capitol Hill. And sure enough, I, I grabbed my recorder to run out of the room and Alan St. Pierre caught me, the executive director of Normal, and said, wow, you're going to you know, break some news today. And, and this, is, uh, this is the chance I got to speak with Alan. Uh, here's what he had to say. So, so we're talking with Alan St. Pierre on the uh, breaking news of Congressman Rohrabacher admitting to at least topical medical cannabis use for arthritis in his shoulder. You were saying this is like the first in how long? Uh, this is definitely the first legislator or Congress uh, in at least 30-some-odd years who has acknowledged to using marijuana illegally, notably for medical purposes. Back in the 19, early 80s, uh, there was a congressman, I believe Stuart McKinney, who um, might have been from either Connecticut or Georgia, and he and a guy named Newt Gingrich introduced a bill, and it was all about his need to use medical marijuana, even back in the 1980s, and a lot of people know about that infamous Gingrich bill and how much he was an advocate for legalizing medical marijuana. He even wrote to the Journal of of American JAMA, writing to them... um, insisting that marijuana be legal for medical purposes only. And so um, I I was shocked. Uh, I turned to the staffer and said, did Congressman Rohrabacher just say that he uses a cannabinoid? An illegal cannabinoid, and he said, "Yeah, and I've never, we've never heard him say that before." <laughs> wow! Breaking news here on yeah. the Russ Belleville show. So, having uh, five Congress people address us today. You know, last year we had Congressman Cohen. We had one. Uh, how many next year? Ten, twenty. <laughs> so, I would suspect. I mean, we you know, in, in the laws of physics, you try to double everything, right? right? And so, I would suspect next year we would like to have ten, and we'd like to have obviously at least another Republican. It was great to have Dana come here and give us another perspective. And I just wish I could take a hair off his head and clone him. I could walk up to Jeff Sessions and and, yeah. and try to flip some of these guys. Yeah, else. I mean, so he's really, it's great that he was able to really flip about 60 Republicans to come on board. So this was great today. All right. Well, we'll uh, get back to this uh, lobby day here from uh, Normal Conference 2016. Yeah, so we were all quite shocked. And uh, I have yet to see 
Any response from Congressman Rohrabacher's office? I know that CNN has picked up the story in Washington Post. Fortune had mentioned that they reached out to his office, but hadn't heard anything back yet. Uh, I don't know that his staff was ready for such an admission, and maybe they're not sure how to spin this, as he may be facing a, a re-election bid. I think he's uh, running for re-election. Aren't, well, they're all re- running for re-election every two years in the House, but... Don't know when he might choose to retire, but good for Congress- Congressman Rohrabacher. A lot of people are really feeling good about this admission today, and you lifted the hearts of lots of patients. Thank you, sir. Oh, gnarly! Yes, it was pretty gnarly. How appropriate that Jeff Spicoli takes us into the 20 after break after we talk about a lifelong surfer. You know, that uh, automation software, sometimes you might think there might be a ghost in the machine. Happy 420 to our friends in the Mountain Time Zone. Happy 420 no matter where you are. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back with some drug war data mining. We don't limit how much you smoke, and we don't limit where you listen. Cannabis Radio is now on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's order. Less heat, <laughs> more flavor. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. (laughs) Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman only on CannabisRadio.com. The Russ Belleville Show, providing dictionaries to drug czars since 2009. The Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. 
Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we take a look at a new study that's come out from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. The title of the post is, As More States Legalize Marijuana, Adolescents' Problems with Pot Decline. Fewer adolescents also report using marijuana. Huh? What's this? Remember back in 2012 when we heard so much from... Kevin Sabet and Patrick Kennedy and David Frum, the Project Sam people, about how legalizing marijuana would send the wrong message to the children. And, and go farther back than that. We can go back to the, the 2000s when every state that would put medical marijuana on the ballot or have legalization on the ballot that failed in 2004 and 2006 and 2002 – uh, in 2010, anytime this would get on the ballot, we'd hear about this message to the children that we'd be sending, that marijuana would be okay, and more kids would be using it, and there'd be problems and dropouts and terrible, terrible effects from loosening our marijuana laws, from, from not locking people up over a plant. Well, this study seems to contradict a lot of that uh, malarkey. What they found is they surveyed 216,000 adolescents from all 50 states, and they found that the number of teens with marijuana-related problems is declining, the rates of marijuana use by young people are falling, and this is despite the fact that over the 12-year span measured, 2002 to 2013, we went from, I believe it was eight medical marijuana states in 2002 to 2013, I believe the number was in the 20s, maybe, or 18, somewhere around there. And, of course, by 2013, we had two fully legal states in Washington and Colorado. So during this time, when we had a dozen years of the message being sent that marijuana is medicine and we ought not lock people up over their recreational use even – uh, apparently the message isn't getting through. Uh, maybe we need to put it in backwards in an Ozzy Osbourne song or something, right? It needs to be backmasked. <laughs> I don't know how this, uh, how we're, well, wait, Ozzy, uh, 12 to 17, we need to think younger, Russ. Think younger, I don't know, Ariana Grande, I don't know. But somehow we've got to get this message through to the kids uh, that it's going to make them want to use more marijuana. It's not working, uh, apparently, because fewer of them are using what they found is that the number of adolescents who had a problem related to marijuana, such as becoming dependent or having trouble in school or having trouble with relationships, declined 24% from 2002 to 2013. Dropped by almost a quarter, folks. <laughs> we legalized and medicalized all these states. Dropped. Almost a quarter for the children. What about the children indeed? Also, over the same period course they asked the kids had you used pot over the previous year and there was fewer incidences of marijuana use in 2013 than what had been reported in 22 2002 uh the rate fell by 10 percent 10 percent lower rate of marijuana use annually by 12 to 17 year olds after the relentless message of medical marijuana and marijuana legalization now, these drops, according to the article, were accompanied by reductions in behavioral problems, things like fighting, property crimes, vandalism, selling drugs. And they found there is a, a connection between the two trends. The less likely kids get into trouble, the less likely they get into using marijuana. 
Now, I think there's also something working the other direction as well. The less likely they get into trouble for using marijuana, the less likely they get angry and belligerent and cause other sorts of problems. The fighting, the property crimes, the selling drugs. Now, the author of the study, Richard Grusha, PhD, he's an associate professor of psychiatry, said, quote, we were surprised to see substantial declines in marijuana use and abuse. We don't know how legalization is affecting young marijuana users, but it could be that many kids with behavioral problems are more likely to get treatment earlier in childhood, making them less likely to turn to pot during adolescence. But whatever is happening with these behavioral issues, it seems to be outweighing any effects of marijuana decriminalization, end quote. So he's trying to say here that he's trying to blunt the uh, impact of what marijuana legalization or decriminalization is doing. And I think that's fair, right? A lot of, you know, when we look at this, we have to be fair on our side, too, because we say there's a lot of chicken and egg problems when you talk about marijuana and its effect on people and statistics, right? There's a lot of this, you know, correlation, but not causation. So can we say that marijuana decriminalization and legalization is leading to fewer kids using or fewer problems for kids that use? No, can't say that directly. But also, it would appear that this legalization medicalization trend is not causing the problems that our opponents had predicted would come to pass. We aren't, see- we aren't seeing more fights. We aren't seeing more suspensions. We aren't seeing more marijuana use. In 2002, 16% had used marijuana. This is age 12 to 17. That number is below 14% by 2013. The marijuana use disorders declined from 4% in 2002 down to 3% in 2013. The lead author, Dr. Grusia, says also, quote, other research shows that psychiatric disorders earlier in childhood are strong predictors of marijuana use later on. So it's likely that if these disruptive behaviors are recognized earlier in life, we may be able to deliver therapies that will help prevent marijuana problems and possibly problems with alcohol and other drugs, too, end quote. In other words, you catch kids with mental problems early, you get them some treatment, they don't turn to cannabis to self-medicate. He's kind of underlining the fact that a lot of people are self-medicating out there, isn't he? All right, we're back with Government at Work and Representative Susan Del Bene from Washington State. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Maui Wowie. Acapulco Gold. California Kush. Our strains stretch everywhere, too. This is the Cannabis Radio Network. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. 
It's time for Cannabis Facts about teen drug use from Robert Platchorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp, Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. A recent survey by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control indicates that in states that have legalized medical marijuana, the rate of marijuana consumption among high school students has not increased. In fact, in legal states like Colorado, teen use has actually decreased significantly. It's simply no longer a big deal for teenagers in legal states. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Carson doesn't believe in the Geneva Convention. Okay, maybe you're high, too. Are you playing an acoustic guitar but want to be louder without an amp? Try a resonator guitar. The fingerboard extension has national resophonic and other resonators, square necks and round necks. Stop by the fingerboard extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Go wild hog in the woods. Reforming America's marijuana prohibition laws takes education, lobbying, and voting. From Washington, D.C. to your state capitol to your city hall, marijuana law reform involves all levels of civic life. Learn how you can make your impact with elected officials as we take a look at our government at work. So we're, we're now uh, blessed by, uh, by the way, uh, Normal's been here for 46 years, and as far as we know, we've never been addressed by a female member of Congress. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> I am, I'm red with embarrassment, but that's the reality. And so, so for me, I've been at Normal for 25 years, so I feel blessed that I can shake the hand <laughs> of a female legislator who's going to talk at a podium to us. Um, but just quickly about her bill, um, there are so many bills. I mean, it's a potpourri of bills in, in the House, uh, and they range all over this place. But in some ways, uh, Susan's bill is the um, most streamlined in that it acknowledges something that everybody seems to understand, and that if a state wants to move in this direction, such as hers has, then really the federal government should totally get out of the way and it's not in violation of UN laws. And so while there are a lot of other bills to compete with and we've heard from the sponsors of others, and those are much more complicated bills, I'd suggest to you, I really appreciate the fact that yours is in some ways the most um, streamlined. So thank you very much. It's a, a special honor, I think, now. I didn't know I was going to be the first woman to address you. So, um, But there are many women in the audience, so clearly we're all represented. Um, so I'm Susan Delbonet. I represent the 1st Congressional District of Washington State, um, what I always call the better Washington. But, uh, um, but uh, it's a beautiful, diverse district in Washington State. And as you know, um, we passed... Um, legislation in Washington state to legalize recreational and medicinal uses of marijuana. 
Um, I introduced a bill called the Smart Enforcement Act, and the key piece of legislation we introduced was to try to address the issue that I'm sure many of you have seen with conflict between state and federal law, and also to address issues as we've seen um, with banking. Um, the, the kind of core part of my legislation would allow the U.S. Attorney General to provide waivers to states that meet a certain regulatory environment, that is making sure that minors, for example, don't have access. Um, if a state meets those requirements, then the U.S. Attorney General can provide a waiver to those states. It's a waiver from the Controlled Substances Act so that there is no conflict between, um, between state, state law and federal law. Um, the important thing, I think, about this, these would be um, waivers for a few years so that you would be able to see how a state was doing, and then the attorney general could come back and review that. But the key part of this legislation is it would really provide data and show folks what can happen when states are um, not in conflict with federal law and do have legalization to show what really happens. And I think that actually creates precedent and learning to help advise broad federal legislation in the future. And I know you've probably heard from many folks who are pushing for um, broad fed federal leg legislation and descheduling and legalization, but if we're going to have a struggle getting there, one of the things I think that's critical about the, my proposal is that it really helps um, states that have legalized move forward, but it also gives real information and data that potentially helps inform federal legislation going forward. And that also helps move us in that direction. So um, it's called the Smart Enforcement Act. I know um, that, that you've supported it, and I encourage folks to talk about it and, and support it as well so that, once again, when we, as we have those opportunities, we're able to move pieces of legislation like this forward and address the conflicts that I know um, are challenging to many states, including ours. So with that, I'll, I'll quickly open up for questions and we can, or answers. Yeah, uh, we're actually from uh, Africa. Yeah. But uh, one of the big things that in the industry that we've seen is, uh, I'm a retailer, uh, is that uh, we've seen taxation. I mean, banking, yes, is a huge part of it as well. But uh, I mean, just this year alone, I, I my average tax, federal tax rate was 51%. Um, and it was outrageous. I had to pay tax on almost half a million dollars of income that I never paid, like in half. And it's a kind of right things off. It's such a huge part. And this is, you know, small business. Um, and, you know, you kid, it's, it's quite pricey. Um, and that's me when I look at what the IRS with that whole piece. I mean, do you see any movement on that? I mean, I, I just look at this, the IRS going, look how money we're making, why do you change rules? Well, I think a lot of these decisions are decisions that are made at the state level right now in terms of taxation. And so I think different states have different um, kind of tax policies that they put in place. And so that's really going to be the key area is to focus on the state and to state po policy. In terms of what types of tax, you're just saying, to, just, but not specific to your business, just taxes. 280. Mm -hmm. 280 is our base. Let's stop and let's kill them. It's, it's, I mean, obviously, we can talk about state tax, but on top of that, they have 280 and any writing off almost our basic basic expenses. Outrageous. No, so I'm just feeling particularly loud over here all of a sudden. Um, so uh, definitely, I think if we look broadly, we need. 
tax reform across the board to support small businesses, to support um, businesses across our, our country. Um, this is a complicated conversation because our tax code is very, very complicated and no one wants to lose anything that they have and so we end up adding more things onto our tax code without removing things. So we definitely have work to do there. We talk generally about comprehensive tax reform, but um, but we haven't really moved on at this Congress. The hope is we'll get to start having that conversation across the board on, on taxes. Congresswoman, I, I got to uh, visit the United Nations General Assembly special session on bugs. They discussed the three international treaties. Does your bill comport with that as far as, you said waivers from the DOJ and such, uh, does it address those treaty obligations in any way? Um, I'm not sure. I'm looking at Lauren on my stuff back there, too, to see if she has an answer. Um, so ours is really just a waiver from the Controlled Substances Act for states that meet the requirements that would be set out. And those were the requirements that were set out in the, what's the, the what? Right. The, the the memo, um, what is it, tw the coal memo, like 20 or 12, um, 12, I think, points in the coal memo. And so those are in the bill, and um, and so if you meet that bar, the U.S. Attorney General then could provide you with a waiver uh, for that state, for like I said, for three. What's the bill number? Do you know, Lauren? Sorry, I don't know it off the top of my head. Thirty-seven. Somebody said thirty-seven forty-six. Yeah. Well, I, I do think, you know, the, the important part of um, this piece of legislation is that it's not trying to change laws in other states. Um, it's not saying there's going to be a change in terms of what you want to see in place. And if you don't want to see legalization right now and your state doesn't have it, we're not pushing that on you. We're saying that for states who have, um, who have laws that make recreational or medicinal or both legal, that, um, that waivers are potentially available, provided they meet those requirements, and that then there's no conflict there, but we're not also impacting others. And I think the hard part with broader pieces of legislation is that folks are fighting that because they think it would change laws in their state that they may not want, not want to see changed. And the opportunity with this piece of legislation is that it also allows states who have legalized, if they have those waivers, then to move forward and we learn. We learn, and we, we aren't going to be talking about the challenges between the, the conflict of laws. We'll actually learn what happens um, going forward, and that will actually create learning that will inform other states going forward and potentially um, federal policy going forward. And I think that moves us, and, you know, if, if we learn things not to do, that's learning as well, and I think that's, um, and that's okay. That's part of what everyone needs to know, and I think that's partly, I'd say, the the pushback I'd, I'd have on those folks is why aren't we learning? Um, we're kind of trying to learn now, but we're not, you know, it, the conflicts that are there make it harder to do that. Yeah. Congresswoman, thank you for speaking with us today. Is there such a thing as a cannabis office? 
there, I don't know. I'm looking to see if anyone else knows if there is officially a, a caucus. I thought there was some type of caucus that someone put together. No, no, no. By there is on the There is on the staff list. Oh, okay. There, there are a group of staffers who meet that's effectively a candidate's caucus. I don't know that members consider it that. Okay, I, I, I don't know. Like, I know uh, Representative Pro Mutter, he has a marijuana policy uh, staffer, so I think it's pretty much my office at this point. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I apologize because I have to run off to a hearing myself, but um, but thank you. Um, if you have questions for us, please let us know as we move forward. Um, Lauren and my staff, who's standing back there, or not standing, sitting down back there, um, has been working on these issues in my office. But um, we appreciate your ongoing feedback, too, as we try to work with others and hopefully move forward. So thank you so much. Congresswoman. Susan Delvene from Washington State speaking to the gathering of normal activists in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill who gathered for Normal's Lobby Day 2016. You can get that speech plus the speech of the other four representatives, Representative Earl Blumenauer, Jared Polis, Sam Farr, and Dana Rohrbacher through my SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash radicalrust. Or just check out the post at the Cannabis Radio News page, CannabisRadio.com slash news. we got to take a break and pay some of the bills. And when we come back in the Radical Rant, I'll be taking a look at Ohio's new medical marijuana bill that should become law soon. I've got 16 details you may not know about when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. How high do you like your profit margin? CannabisRadio.com. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. We love it. Russ Belville inviting you to join me every weekday on CannabisRadio.com for the Russ Belville Show. It's the NPR of POT. We bring you the latest marijuana headlines, cannabis analysis, drug war data, activist interviews, radical rants, and your live calls. Join me every weekday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, live only on CannabisRadio.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. I said, on this program, what do they want? My grandchildren and the monster. <gasps> Did I scare you? Okay. Maybe you're high, too. With over six years of experience in the industry, New Era CPAs is one of the nation's leading cannabis accounting firms, helping hundreds of growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies with their tax, legal, and business strategies. New Era CPAs offices cover the West Coast from Seattle to San Diego, and their skilled team is always available to help you take your business to the next level. 
Visit NewEraCPAs.com for more info and set up a consultation. Welcome to the New Era. must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make them. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it. and didn't inhale. And one major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical rant. Well, the Senate in Ohio has passed a medical marijuana bill. They're gonna, they've sent it to the desk of Governor John Kasich. He's expected to sign it, and that would give us the 26th medical marijuana state, at least if you define medical marijuana state as one that allows cannabis medicines with tetrahydrocannabinol in them. There are another 16 states, of course, that uh, recognize cannabis medicines low in THC but rich in cannabidiol. We call them the CBD-only states. Uh, There's only one of them, Missouri, that uh, has any sort of production of the CBD oil. The rest of the states, people have to get it from, say, Colorado and then traffic it back home. And so that means there's only eight states left. Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Arkansas, Indiana, and West Virginia that recognize absolutely no medical value to cannabis whatsoever in their state laws. So, with the addition of Ohio and recently Pennsylvania as medical marijuana states, there are now over 179 million Americans, or over 55% of the population, living where cannabis is recognized as medicine. Cannabis with THC in it is recognized as medicine. And best of all, Ohio medical marijuana is the first whole plant medical marijuana in the last five states. The activists in Ohio scored a major victory by lobbying for the inclusion of whole plant cannabis for use by patients. Now, the bill had emerged from the House in similar form to the recent laws in Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Minnesota, and New York that allow only for non-smokable forms, the oils and pills and extracts of cannabis. But the Senate amended it to allow for the use of marijuana, but only by vaporization and not by combustion, no smoking, which I'm sure people in the privacy of their own homes will rigidly follow as rigidly as they follow the for tobacco use only signs in the head shops. Now, patients will not be afforded the right to cultivate their own cannabis, however. No home grow. Ohio will also be one of the few medical marijuana states that doesn't allow the use of medical marijuana for the treatment of nausea, something that has been a traditional and scientifically backed use of marijuana for decades now. Before medical marijuana era, even. And the passage of this bill so swiftly by the legislature, of course, was enabled by two major pieces of citizen activism. The first was the ill-fated campaign of issue three for Ohio in 2015. In that was last November, and the state's voters soundly rejected the attempt to create both recreational and medical marijuana due to an unpopular plan to limit commercial grows to 10 investor-owned properties. But during the campaign, polling over the measure indicated supermajority support for medical marijuana. 
So that then led to this second campaign headed up this year by the Marijuana Policy Project to bring a comprehensive medical marijuana law before the people as another initiative. The threat of that more liberal initiative, because it would have allowed for home growing and it would have better protected patient rights, that threat goaded the legislature to act first in an effort to under, undercut support for that initiative. And in fact, sources are telling me that MPP's initiative won't be able to raise money for more signature gathering after this law is signed, and the initiative is likely finished in Ohio. So that's the basics of the Ohio medical marijuana law as it stands right now. I, there are some more details. As I, as I looked through the, the law, because some people questioned me as to whether or not it actually did uh, allow for a whole plant. And I was able to find the section that, indeed, it does allow for whole plant medical marijuana. Uh, in the definitions of marijuana, it, uh, it matches the uh, criminal definition, which includes marijuana. But most specifically, it's uh, section 3796.06. Uh, only the following forms of medical marijuana may be dispensed. Oils, tinctures, and number three, plant material. And then that's followed by edibles, patches, and any other form approved by the State Board of Pharmacy. So it's right there in the law that it allows for plant material. But farther down in the law, it says uh, the smoking or combustion of medical marijuana is prohibited. <laughs> so you can uh, vaporization of medical marijuana is permitted. So whatever you do, don't smoke those buds that you buy. Also, interestingly enough, this bill has a limit on THC. Uh, now, the plant material can't be any greater than 35% THC. Well, I don't know that this is so bad a limit because I'm not even seeing stuff that reaches 35% THC here in Oregon. So that's fine, whatever. But the problem is the next line that says that extracts shall be limited to a THC content no greater than 70%. 70% on a concentrate is pretty low, actually. And I, I don't know why uh, this limit would be placed in the law. I, I don't see what purpose it actually serves. There's also uh, no firm definition of how much cannabis uh, a person can have. It just says a 90-day supply. And the government's going to figure out what a 90-day supply is later. Uh, that was all sorts of problems in Washington State. 60-day uh, supply was defined as, at the time, 15 plants and 24 ounces. So we'll see what 90 days turns out to be. Uh, there is uh, interesting and, and uh, maybe controversial uh, part here where the department that uh, does the licensing for cultivation, processing, laboratories – and retail dispensaries uh, must give 15% of the total licenses to people who are members of one of the following economically disadvantaged groups, blacks or African-Americans, American Indians, Hispanics or Latinos, and Asians. Now, now this is interesting in the phrasing of this because it says uh, following economically disadvantaged groups, but stats will show you that Asians aren't economically disadvantaged in this country. Uh, statistically speaking, their median income is greater than, uh, than white Americans, but I get their drift here. They're trying to make sure that there is minority inclusiveness 
in this law, and at least 15% of the people of color uh, are getting the licenses. There is also in this bill uh, criminal background checks. Now, this may work against that inclusiveness because uh, if disqualifying offenses include, include previous convictions for marijuana crimes, that's more likely to be people of color. And so that kind of goes against your idea of inclusiveness. However, they haven't set what the uh, the crimes are yet. They haven't set what is a disqualifying offense. That's going to be set you know, by the department. So perhaps that can be lobbied on and we can make sure that it doesn't unfairly penalize people of color. A great piece of news in this initiative is the inclusion of reciprocity. Ohio will recognize other states' medical marijuana cards. That's great news there. We've got in the Ohio bill uh, a protection of parental rights. People using medical marijuana uh, can't be not can't be denied parental rights, custody rights, visitation rights, uh, just for their use of medical marijuana. You have to actually show there's harm to the child going on. We've also got a protection for organ transplants. Uh, this has happened in some of the states where medical marijuana patients are kicked off an organ transplant waiting list because of their THC content or metabolite content. That can't happen under Ohio's law. They're specifically protected. However, employers are specifically protected in the law to continue discriminating against medical marijuana patients. They can still drug test. They can still refuse to hire. They can still fire people for their use of marijuana, for their testing dirty on a drug test, even if they're a medical marijuana patient. And they made sure that you can't do anything about it. They specifically prevent any sort of lawsuits or uh, injunctive relief uh, for patients who've been screwed over by uh, discrimination. Also, uh, localities will be able to ban dispensaries and growers and processors uh, without a vote of the people, just from their local board uh, or their uh, council. There is also um, the forfeiture of insurance, pension, and workman comp benefits for people who test positive for marijuana use, and it specifically make sure that people who are medical marijuana patients can be thus discriminated against. We have a definition here to determine whether or not you're under the influence of marijuana, which they specifically exempt from the category of drugs that would be prescribed by a physician, is just 15 nanograms of metabolite in your urine will determine that you are under the influence of cannabinoids at work if they want to deny you your workman's comp or fire you or deny your unemployment and so forth. Uh, Yeah, 15 nanograms of metabolite in urine, which no medical marijuana patient would ever be able to pass. We've got uh, a registry for doctors. If doctors want to recommend medical cannabis in Ohio, they will be forced to get a certificate with the state, file an application. And the recommendations that doctors make for medical cannabis in Ohio will only be good for 90 days. 90-day recommendations. You have to go back to your recommending doctor every three months. Now, the doctor only has to give you an examination once a year, but you'll probably be paying a doctor every three months to make sure you can stay uh, protected from arrest. So those are some of the details of the Ohio medical cannabis uh, bill, I should say. It's not a law yet, but it is expected that Governor, Governor Kasich will sign it, and in doing so, undercut the support for MPP's whole plant 
home grow medical marijuana initiative. Gosh, it's almost like I recall somebody last November warning people in Ohio that if they didn't vote for issue three, the next medical marijuana they'd get would be non-smokable, dispensary-only, no-home-grow medical marijuana with a very limited set of conditions. Hell, this one doesn't include nausea, folks. I hate to say I told you so, but <laughs> I told you so. It's all the time we got for hour one, but stay tuned. Hour two is coming up next. We'll have more to talk about in the wide world of weed. For everyone here at Cannabis Radio, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Where you can tell. I am here. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Potland, Oregon, at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. All right, welcome back, tokers and tokettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. Radical Russ here, coming to you live and direct from beautiful, legal Potland, Oregon, on the 26th floor of the Ardea Condominium Tower on the South Waterfront. A guest of my good friend, Randy Quast, from the Normal Board of Directors. Thank you, Randy, for all your support. And, you know, I mean that in the biggest way, man. Randy went above and beyond... In his donation to the Russ Belville show in getting me to Washington, D.C., first first of all, got me there, put me up in a great hotel that was centrally located so I could walk to all of the events I needed to walk to. I managed to go to a protest at the White House with the uh, DCMJ people, Adam Eidinger, on the same day. This protest happened on the same day. This was Friday the 20th that there was a shooting outside the White House. So Secret Service was out, people, automatic weapons, snipers on the 
White House roof. And there we were on H Street uh, in front of Lafayette Park with bullhorns, or actually he's got a little mobile PA system in a wagon, uh, delivering speeches, and <laughs> it was just remarkable. And smoking weed. <laughs> and smoking weed, that was, that was the best part of that. So I'm going to play that uh, clip for you here in hour two. Uh, my chance to uh, speak at the uh, at the rally there in Washington D.C. and then of course uh, I I got a chance to go to all nine of the major monuments in Washington D.C. I took the day on Sunday in my Stony Sunday uh, T-shirt and walked to all of the major. Uh, uh, Attractions, I guess you could say. Uh, so we started with the White House, and then I walked my way down to the Capitol. Then from the Capitol, you're right there on the National Mall. So I walked from the Capitol on down to the Washington Monument, the Smithsonian Natural History Museum, uh, the uh, Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam War Memorial, the World War II Memorial, the Korean War Memorial, the uh, uh, Jefferson Memorial, the Martin Luther King Memorial. Uh, it was amazing. It was a great day and <laughs> really good exercise, too. It's a long walk. <laughs> I think it's three, four miles uh, by the time that you've done that entire walk. And it was it was really fun. Uh, you know, our nation's capital is, is, is a remarkable place. And once you get used to the metro systems in these uh, big cities, you can get around really cheap. Uh, it's uh, really affordable. The hotel room, maybe not so much. Uh, you might want to look on an Airbnb, uh, see if you can find a room as far as uh, finding something cheap. But uh, otherwise, it's uh, it's pretty doable and pretty enjoyable. All right, so um, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we'll have my appearance at the... Uh, for at the 520 it was on 520 actually which is harry j anslinger's birthday so we'll play my clip from that appearance at the dcmj die-in is what they were doing they were trying to highlight the fact that we have so many of our american veterans committing suicide 22 a day reportedly but the number is most likely higher than that so they wanted to bring some attention to that and also again to push the Obama administration pushed President Obama as he faces his last few months in office, push him toward ending this stupid scheduling of marijuana, this misscheduling of cannabis, that it doesn't belong on the schedule that it's on. So we'll have, uh, like I said, my speech from that event and more when we return here on the Russ Bellville Show, hour two. Toker Talk Radio. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Good afternoon, Washington, D.C. My name is Radical Russ Belville. I'm with CannabisRadio.com. I'm here from beautiful legal... Seed to sale, clicks to conversions, and more. You're listening to the Cannabis Radio Network. This is the Sarah Jesus Show podcast on CannabisRadio.com. 
And don't try to debate me on something. Motherfucker, I can't do many things well. But words are my shit. The Stoner Jesus Show. Live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Or find the Stoner Jesus Show podcast on demand at CannabisRadio.com and StonerJesus.net. Peace, bitches. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Please, they pay me to say that. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. You're not high. You're listening to the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. And if standing for the Constitution make you a wacko bird, then I am a very, very proud wacko bird. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. The cannabis business industry is growing, business is booming, and as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Today, it takes more than just being a good grower. Do you have the resources to market and handle this ever-changing business landscape? Let Canna Management Corporation help you grow your cannabis business with our vast resources and experience to make your business a fully functional service company. Financial management, HR, sales, marketing, efficiency, and more. CMC has the experience and the expertise to improve your business and help you better meet the demands of your clients and customers. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com. Pod 2.0. It's not your father's Woodstock weed. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. Just about nine minutes past the hour. And uh, we're going to take you back to last Friday, where I began my uh, activism in Washington, D.C., leading up to the normal conference and lobby days. I joined up with Adam Eidinger, as well as Chris Goldstein and N.A. Poe, who came up from Philly. And uh, we were a part of a rally that took place in front of the White House uh, on 8th Street, actually in front of Lafayette Park. DCMJ die-in, seed giveaway, and smoke out. I got a chance to take the mic. Thanks to Adam Eidinger for letting me speak. These were my remarks. Good afternoon, Washington, D.C. My name is Radical Russ Belville. I'm with CannabisRadio.com. I'm here from beautiful, legal Portland, Oregon. 503 in the house? Good to hear it. So we legalized marijuana in Oregon. Not just the growing gear you got in Washington, D.C. We actually have stores. When I run out of weed, I go down to the weed store on 24th. And if I don't like the selection and prices there, I walk four blocks to the one on 28th. Or the one on 33rd. Or the one on 42nd. Or the one on 60th. Or the one on 88th. Or the one on 102nd. And guess what? Even with all those dispensaries and all those legal pot smokers, the trains still run on time, people still go to work, kids still go to school, parents raise their kids, nothing has changed except one thing. Tax revenue. 
tax revenue. My man's reading my mind. In the first month, we raised $5 million in tax revenue in Oregon. The state of Colorado has already raised $100 million in recreational taxes, $32 million in medical taxes just last year. $1.5 million of that tax money is going in Pueblo County, Colorado to directly help the homeless. There's another campaign where it's gotten 25 $1,000 grants to disadvantaged Hispanic kids that want to go to college. Marijuana money is funding people's dreams now. I'm so proud of everyone here that's here to show up to protest, to stand up for our rights. Because America, this is our hemp heritage. Hemp was first planted in this country in 1611. Its medical uses were popularized by Dr. O'Shaughnessy in this country by the 1850s. By 1853, the New York Times was writing about the vogue of hashish parlors. By the 1900s, Louis Armstrong, Cab Calloway, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, they were all singing about the jive, the muggles, the reefer, the tea, otherwise known as marijuana. This is our heritage, and it's been stolen from us, beginning with the man whose birth date is today, Harry J. Anslinger, a man who was the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1937 to 1962, from FDR to JFK. A man who was a disgusting and shameless racist. I could go over the quotes, but I'm not going to. Look up Harry J. Anslinger racist. You'll find plenty of them. And that was Welcome the foundation. Oh, he's got some right there. That was the foundation of our drug war. That was continued under Richard Nixon. Most recently in Harper's Magazine, it was revealed a quote from John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's advisors, who said... Basically, I paraphrase, so I don't have it memorized. I was, we knew I, the war on drugs was BS, but we made it illegal public because opinion. we wanted to infiltrate the black Freedom. power movement and the hippie left movement. The In the right direction. Movement. So we I don't know if you wanted to... criminalize them for being long-haired or being black, but we could criminalize them for marijuana. And we could infiltrate their groups, we could break up their leadership, and we could destroy their movements. This has always been about control. Now... The to the point of us being here at the White House. President Obama is one of us. He was a member of what was called the Choom Gang in high school in Hawaii. To Choom means to smoke marijuana. In fact, of his group of tokers, President Obama was the king toker. He was the man. He used to do what was called TA, total absorption hits. When they were in the VW bus smoking weed and the smoke would collect at the roof, Obama would put his face to the roof and suck down the hit. That's how much of a stoner our current president is. So for this man to sit in the White House and ignore the deaths of veterans, to ignore the suffering of medical marijuana patients, to ignore the disproportionately young, black, and Latino people whose lives are ruined on a daily basis to the tune of 700000 a year is a disgrace. And when they tell me that, oh, we don't, wait, you know, that we don't really care about the little guy, we go after the big kingpin. There's my friend right there, Chris Goldstein, he's one of the kingpins. Smoked to join at the Liberty Bell, so he got two years of probation or $3,000 fine from our federal government for protesting at the Liberty Bell. And he's an excellent out. And a Poe also standing here, also a freedom fighter who stood up for our rights and got taken so down I'm by ask. And now today, here we are, openly smoking weed right in front of the White House. Thanks, guys. We're winning.
thanks to you. So President Obama, one last word. You know this is not a drug that belongs on the same scale as heroin, LSD, and PCP. Neither does it belong in Schedule 2 with cocaine, methamphetamine, and Oxycontin. Neither does it belong in Schedule 3 with Valium and Ambien and anabolic steroids. It doesn't belong on the schedule at all. D, schedule marijuana. And President Obama, don't give us this line we've heard from you for the past eight years of, oh, well, gee, if Congress, if Congress, maybe if Congress, if Congress, you and I both know that's BS. The Controlled Substances Act of 1971 vests in the President and the Attorney General the authority on signature alone to instigate the rescheduling or descheduling of any drug on the Controlled Substances Act. Stop passing the buck, Mr. President. Help our vets. Help our patients. Free our people. Free the weed. Wonderful story you were just telling. Uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Cannabis Radio. Yes. Sounds, sounds exciting. There you go. There's for the spelling. Uh, Russ Bellavel. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's your name. Yeah, that's me. Nice to meet you. I'm with the Roughly Video Agency. Yes, yes. Um, so, what are the advantages of uh, legalizing marijuana? The advantages of legalizing marijuana, number one, is that we begin to reap the tax revenues and bring a completely underground economy above ground. I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I do this for a living. I've traveled to all the legal states. In all of those states, unemployment is down, tax revenues are up, jobs are being created, and really nobody who wasn't smoking pot before uh, is now smoking pot, except for one demographic, people over the age of 50. Surprisingly, it's not the teenagers, it's not the kids, it's the older baby boomers coming back to marijuana after all these years that is fueling a lot of this boom. So you were saying then President Obama was smoking himself. This, I haven't yes, heard in, this in President Obama's memoirs, uh, a book called Dreams from My Father, he discusses his time as a teenager growing up in Hawaii, where he not only used marijuana, but also used cocaine. This is, this is not telling tales out of school, he admits it in his book. And I was telling the tale of how uh, during his high school years, he was in what was called the Choom Gang, C-H-O-O-M. To Choom was a Hawaiian slang term for to smoke pot. And of the Choom Gang, he was the King Choomer. He actually uh, used to take what were called TA hits. That stands for total absorption. And what it meant was when all the tokers were in the VW van, hotboxing the van, he would put his face to the roof and suck the hits off the roof. That's how intense a marijuana consumer President Obama was. So what's the problem now with legalizing it here? The problem with legalizing it is there's a whole lot of money to be made in keeping it illegal. First of all, police. Police do not want this to change for a couple of reasons. Number one, marijuana is the key that unlocks the Fourth Amendment. When they have somebody they think's up to no good, if they don't have a probable cause to deal with that person, they can always claim they smell marijuana, and then they can begin the investigations and the searches that lead to the other crimes. The other reason is money. Police agencies all across the United States get federal grants specifically for fighting the drug war, and some of those are specifically earmarked for fighting marijuana. So, if you legalize marijuana, those grants dry up, as we've seen in Washington and Colorado already. There's also civil asset forfeiture. When cops catch someone with weed or a whole lot of money, they can take the money, take the car. Those prop pieces of property are guilty until proven innocent. The person has to prove they're not drug proceeds in order to get their stuff back. So there's a lot of profit in police agencies, private prisons that require uh, the prisons to be full. They, they need more prisoners. 
drug rehabs, drug testing agencies, big pharmaceutical companies that don't want to have to compete with a natural substance people can grow for themselves, the alcohol, liquor industry that don't want a competitive product. There's just a lot of money in keeping it illegal. So it's a huge industry here, right? A lot of interest. So what's the way to push it through? What, is, there a, is there an option? The, The option is to continue to resist these laws at the state and local level. Uh, America had alcohol prohibition from 1919 to 1937, or to 1933, excuse me. And when it unraveled, it wasn't because the federal government made it legal. It's because states like New York and Washington decided to stop obeying that law. Similarly, with marijuana prohibition, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska so far have decided to not obey this law. Coming in the 2016 election, we've got California, Arizona, Nevada, Massachusetts, Maine that may all legalize. As more and more states fall and as the uh, opinion polls continue to rise for legalization, the federal government will have no choice but to heed the will of the people. What Oregon has that other states don't, don't have to make it legal, why they succeed? What was the... What, what usually happens is the states that have a greater concentration of cannabis consumers are the ones that are more likely to legalize. I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy! <laughs> well, folks, it sound means that it's 4.20 here in the Pacific Time Zone, and I got a nice, well-rolled legal joint that I need to get to. I hope you've got something for your aches and pains and boredom and enjoyment and whatever other reason you might use cannabis for. If not, we are fighting to make that a reality for you as soon as we can. Every strain, every sale, every medical study. Keep it right here on the Cannabis Radio Network. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's orders. Less heat, <laughs> More flavor. It's time for Cannabis Facts About Alzheimer's from Robert Platshorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. A new Florida study in the journal Molecular and Cellular Neuroscience found that cannabis promotes the growth of healthy new brain tissue. It can slow the effects of Alzheimer's and may, in fact, be able to halt it entirely. A long-term study by Ohio State University's professor Gary Wank concludes that people who regularly use marijuana get Alzheimer's at a much lower rate than others. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Don't want to spend money on a night out, but don't know what to do other than watching TV or playing video games? Consider playing guitar, bass, banjo, or mandolin. The instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense. 
Stop by the Fingerboard Extension, downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today, or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. tuned into the Rush Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody, and we continue with our coverage of the normal conference that took place in Washington, D.C. We had a very esteemed lecturer join us, John Hudak from the Brookings Institute. He's been a guest on the show in prior segments. Here he gets a chance to take a little bit of time and explain what have been the impacts of marijuana legalization in the state of Colorado debunking a lot of the scaremongering of people like Kevin Sabet and Project Sam. This was from Monday in Washington, D.C. at the George Washington University. Welcome back. That's what our break was for. <clears throat> I want to take an opportunity to uh, thank you again for coming. I mean, we're, we're fellow travelers in this group. It's good. We're getting good energy from each other. Let's, uh, let's keep that up. I'm going to introduce uh, a brilliant fellow who's a good friend of ours from the Brick, Brookings Institute here in Washington, D.C. He's going to talk about the experience with legalization in Colorado. Uh, I can tell you my first visit to Colorado after it was legal was quite an experience. My first legal joint after 40 years, so it was very impressive. Uh, John Hudak is a senior fellow and a deputy director for the Center of Effective Public Management. He's a senior fellow in governance studies. His research examines questions of presidential power in the context of administration, personnel, and public policy. Additionally, he focuses on campaigns and elections, legislative executive interaction, and state and federal marijuana policy. Uh, he specializes in governance issues around marijuana legalization policy, uh, he, he's looking at the now legal marijuana states and how they're developing legal, regulatory, and bureaucratic systems. Uh, I want you to welcome John Hudak. Well, thank you for the thank you for the introduction. Thank you, everyone, uh, for the invitation today. Uh, it's good to see a lot of friends around the room, and uh, I really enjoy speaking to organizations like this because I sit up in a, the ivory tower and talk about, you know, advocacy and implementation and the proposals that are out there and the laws that are eventually passed, but you're the group of people who are actually getting that done. You're the reason I have a job, because you're having policy successes across the United States, uh, and it, at the federal level, I have something to write about, and so I appreciate that. My, my thanks to all of you. So when Keith invited me to speak, he wanted me to talk a little bit about a, a few topics, the policy landscape in the United States, uh, what's happened in states that have uh, passed reform laws and have begun implementing the policies on the ground, and to talk a little bit about what the future might look like in terms of state-level reforms and in terms of Congress. So I'm going to go through each of those uh, in turn. Looking at the policy landscape is a really interesting one, because I think if you uh, take a step back 20 years ago, for those of you who were in the movement 20 years ago, um, 
someone from Brookings would not be up here talking to you. Uh, this, I was talking to Keith shortly before. This was not a policy. Marijuana reform was not a policy. It was this idea. It was taboo. It was silly. It was treated as uh, nonsense up the road in Congress and certainly across the street at the White House. Um, not only nonsense, but of course a crime. Not something that a, a policy institute like Brookings would focus on, not something con- most congressional staffers would focus on, not even something that the media gave proper treatment to. But fast forward 20 years and something interesting happened. 25 states in the District of Columbia have now passed uh, legitimate medical marijuana reform laws. Four states in the District of Columbia have passed adult use laws. So now over 165 million Americans live in states that have approved full-fledged marijuana, uh, medical marijuana systems. And another uh, over 18 million people live in adult use jurisdictions. That's remarkable. That is policy change in such rapid fashion that there are few areas like that. Think about how long civil rights took to get, to get moving. Uh, there are so many topics that take so much longer and don't have the benefit of what has been a, a, a rapid transformation in 20 years and one that only sees brighter days ahead. Those of you in the reform community um, have had really dark days, for sure. You've lost ballot initiatives. You've lost close votes in legislative chambers. You've lost badly in legislative chambers. There have been a lot of reasons to hang your head and to feel depressed and to question why you're doing it. But now you're seeing those, that tide change. And so you look out at the landscape in 2016. You have several states that are going to vote on either medical or recreational adult use of marijuana. Um, big states, too. Not quirky states, not Alaska, not Colorado, where a lot of people like to smoke pot, but states you might not have expected. Massachusetts, Maine, Arizona, Nevada, California. Well, I guess California fits into the other category. But um, a lot of states, you're, you're having an opportunity in swing states like Florida and Ohio to pass meaningful uh, medical marijuana reform. And it shows not just the success of the movement and the success of the policy, but of the continued legitimization of this. Not just as an issue, but it shows the legitimacy that your organization and others like yours are starting to get in the eyes of the general public, in terms of elected officials, in terms of other interest group environments, and that's all part of the formula that you need for sustained policy success. And that sustained policy success is going to hit some bumps in the road along the way. It's probably not likely that every ballot measure that's on, uh, going to be voted on in November is going to pass, but several of them will. And so you're going to come out of 2016 with some wind at your back. You're going to continue to give me stuff to write about. Again, I appreciate it. Um, And then look forward. Look to 2018. Look to 2020 and see how this is going to... uh, continue to change and how your success is going to continue to build on itself. But beyond what you're doing at the grassroots level, beyond what you're doing in the halls of state legislatures or in the halls of Congress, there's another important facet of this that is critical, that is going to be looked at currently and into the future as a basis for why Americans might vote in favor of a reform measure that's on their ballot, or why state legislators who are on the fence might come to your corner. And that is, we have data. We have states that are implementing marijuana reform laws, and we have data that 
helps answer the questions that were out there. Not everyone who voted in favor of Amendment 64 or I-502 went into it thinking, this is absolutely going to work. You guys might have. But there were probably a lot of voters who went into that booth who said, you know, the drug wars failed. Damn, I hope this works, and cast the ballot in favor. Well, now they're finding out that, well, yeah, damn, it worked. The uh, state of Colorado put out a report recently, back in March, called Marijuana Legalization in Colorado, Early Findings. It's written by a guy from the Department of Public Safety named Jack Reed. I don't, I don't know if any of you know Jack Reed. He is top-notch. He's as smart as they come in Colorado when it comes to looking at data on a variety of topics um, with regard to this. And he found some interesting things. Not all great, not all rosy, but some really interesting findings. So tax revenue skyrocketed after legalization happened. Not a surprise. Arrests went down, though there's still racial disparities in arrests in Colorado. Jobs went up. Economic activity went up. The sky didn't fall, which came as a shock to a lot of Coloradans. Youth use didn't skyrocket. Traffic fatalities didn't skyrocket. Most of the data changes that existed or that happened post-legalization, post-commercialization, were within the margin of error. There was no statistically significant difference between pre- and post-measures um, on these data. It's not true across the board, but generally that was the case. Now, normally, I'm a social scientist. When you find no change in data, usually you pack up and you say, I have nothing here. But in a conversation that was focused around how horrible society would become when all of a sudden people started using marijuana in Colorado, because I don't know if you're aware, before November of 2012, no one in Colorado used marijuana. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. Um, But once they started this, um, everything was going to go to hell. Colorado was going to be a wasteland mentally, uh, physically. Um, People were going to be dying in droves. Children were going to be getting joints at school because they they couldn't do that before November of 2012 either. and it would have been problematic exposure for the state from a PR perspective. None of that happened. In fact, there are some benefits that have happened. Hundreds of millions of dollars in tax and uh, licensure and fee revenue to the state. School construction being funded in part because of marijuana policy, uh, because of marijuana taxes. Um, Even Governor Hickenlooper, who was one of the most staunch opponents of Amendment 64, began to come around and say, well... It's not as bad as we thought. Things don't look terrible. Let's let this system play out. And, and lately, he's actually been pretty bullish about it. He's spoken very positively about what marijuana reform has meant to his state. And this is a man who saw the light, who was absolutely against uh, Amendment 64 uh, publicly, uh, maybe a little less so behind the scenes, but someone who also could have ruined implementation if he wanted to. And he let implementation play out. And you know what? My guess is he probably got reelected because of it. He got reelected by the narrowest of margins. And I think a lot of people in that state looked out and said, you know, John Hickenlooper wasn't necessarily our best friend on pot, but he was a, he's a better friend than the Republican in this race. And, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 votes here or there is going to help a guy out. And uh, I think his comments of late at least uh, would suggest that he appreciates that. That speaks to a broader issue that's happening. 
Politicians always worry that they are going to get slammed for supporting some kind of drug reform, particularly marijuana reform. I think John Hickenlooper is one of the first people in the country who's looking at this and saying, maybe there's a political benefit. Maybe marijuana helped me. And the more politicians see evidence of that, the easier it's going to be to shift them, whether it's at the state level, whether a state legislator, whether it's governors or gubernatorial candidates, whether it's members of Congress or even a president. When they start to see that, A, the marijuana movement has some clout, and B, that public opinion around this issue can actually have an effect at the ballot box, that's going to make significant change even more significant. With the Colorado experience, as well as the experience in Washington and and soon to be in Oregon and Alaska, have shown us, too, is that states left to their own devices can get this right. That's something that was always a question. States don't always get things right. I mean, look at Kansas, for instance. I don't know if anyone is here from Kansas. Kansas doesn't get anything right. And so you worry when you leave to a state implementing not just a policy, but a brand new policy, unprecedented historically, how that will play out. Well, in the state so far, it's played out pretty well. And That's something that this organization has worked hard for decades to do, to say, listen, just let the states try it, and you might be pleasantly surprised. And I think a lot of people in these states are pleasantly surprised. One of the arguments, I think, and one of the the responses to the passage of A64 and I-502 was, you know what, let them have their fun for a couple of years, see what a disaster Colorado and Washington become, and then we'll just repeal it. Then we'll just fix it because everyone is going to see what a moral and physical wasteland these states become. Well, you know who opposes, or rather who supports repeal in Colorado and Washington? Only the people who were opposed it and opposed the passage initially. Minds aren't being changed in the direction of repeal. People are either happy with it, or they're fine with it, or they hate it because they've always hated it, and no amount of data or experience is going to change their mind. The idea that over time people would experience what happens in Colorado and it would very quickly change their mind is a little silly. If anything, the experience residents of those states have have, uh, gotten has been a positive one, or at least not as negative of one as as was propagandized. And that's the trouble with propagandists. If you paint a gloom and doom scenario and that gloom and doom scenario doesn't play out, you look like an idiot. I think there's a lot of people in those states who, who don't look their best after they're seeing what happens when a policy like this is rolled out, when smart people in state government are assigned to implement it, and then they get the support from the reform community and other communities and other stakeholders in the state to try to get it right. That They can get it right. And I think we're going to see that in Oregon, and we're going to see it in Alaska as these programs uh, continue to roll out or initially roll out. D.C. is another story, of course, and that's the fault of Congress. But as you, as you look at states that are also considering new reforms, the states I mentioned before, they're getting smart about it. They're forming working groups. They're forming committees. They're forming study groups to try to anticipate what the unique challenges might be within their individual states post-reform and what they can learn from other states who have gone through this. Now, I've spoken positively about Colorado and Washington in terms of what they've been able to do, but their implementation wasn't perfect. Not everything went off without a hitch. 
they experienced problems. What they didn't do in response to those problems was shut the system down. Instead, they did what effective public policy would suggest that you do, and that is fix it, tweak it. Don't repeal it, just make it work. The voters of those states wanted this system to work, and so the state legislature and other uh, uh, regulators have gone in, made some changes to the system. They're going to have to continue to make changes to the system, not because there's something inherently problematic about marijuana policy, but because there's something inherent about, uh, inherently problematic about public policy generally. It's never done right on the first time. Situations change, environments change, settings change, and effective governance requires flexibility to those changes. The states so far have done that. Hopefully they continue to do that. Hopefully the states that reform later on are going to continue to do that because it's the only way it's successful. When you have a policy that's rigid, when you have a, a, a set of leaders who are unbending, that's when policies fail. Luckily, this community um, has, has largely been able to avoid that, at least in the states early on, uh, that have reformed. So where do you go from here? It's an interesting question. I, th I think there's a few responses. Some of them are positive ones, and some, some of them I think are less so. First is, keep up the good work. You've been doing some good things for the reform movement. You've had some success. You've had some failures, and you've learned, you've learned from those failures, and that's a positive too. But continue doing what you're doing top to bottom and hope that voters in those states are going to be convinced of your efforts, are going to continue to support your efforts, be it at the ballot box, be it financially, um, be it uh, just in terms of the way that they're talking about this issue, which, again, if we... Uh, rewind 20 years, just the way people are talking about marijuana as a policy and not as a punchline is maybe one of the most significant parts of this movement. Just changing the communication, the framing, the tenor, the bias around what this issue is, is a lot of times more than half the battle. And again, back to the legitimacy of this point, uh, this, this issue and this policy, Part of the reason reform didn't happen for decades was because it was not legitimate, what, because a, an institutionalized, century-long war of propaganda from Harry Anslinger to Chuck Rosenberg and everyone in between made this issue evil. This was a product that only had harm, had no benefit, and left to the devices of an individual could not be used appropriately or well or safely. And changing minds about those points is extraordinarily difficult but absolutely essential. And you've really begun to do that. But the next part of this, uh, the next part of anticipating the future is looking at a changing landscape. I talked a little bit about a changing landscape in a regulatory environment, but a changing, changing landscape also happens in an advocacy movement and in the environment around interest groups. Uh, there's going to be division. There's going to be disagreement. Uh, some of it may be minor. Some of it may be major. We've seen a little bit of this in Arizona this year and last. We've certainly seen it in Ohio this year, and it's continuing on. Um, these are, this is part of interest group advocacy. Uh, you've been fairly united for quite some time because 
you've been losing for quite some time. It's easy to hold hands when you're getting screwed all the time. But when you start to win, the divisions and the interests and the particulars of your approach really begin to settle in and you get to where you don't like each other or you disagree with each other or you think that you have a better approach than the other. And that's, as I said, that's healthy, that's normal. But part of overcoming that is anticipating those divisions and trying your damnedest to work well together to overcome them. You know, there are a lot of interests in this town who are divided and who have very different uh, versions of what they think is successful. But they also have national advocacy organizations who speak for them in one voice. And when you look at some of the most successful organizations in this country, pharmaceuticals, petrochemicals, um, others like that, they're being well represented just a few blocks up on K Street, um, because even though those divisions exist, they're able at least to smooth them over when they're talking to elected officials, when they're dealing with regulators, when they're talking to the media, and when they're trying to achieve ultimately the few things they agree on that they need to achieve. And so the future for marijuana advocacy uh, needs to do that too. One of the other things they need to do, and, and I think this is a real weakness in the, in the movement, and it's one that a lot of movements suffer from, and that is you pass your ballot initiative. You get your state legislature to reform the law. So you've won. Great. We're done. That's the response. You've just begun. When you look at consumer uh, markets in this country and the regulatory environments around those consumer markets, um, ones that have been well-established, are mature, are entrenched, are huge, that dwarf the marijuana industry. They are working just as hard every single day in the halls of Congress, in the halls of state legislatures, in governor's offices, in the regulatory agencies in this town to make sure that their interests are continuing to be heard and that the law, not the statute, not the constitutional amendment, not the ballot initiative, but what really matters, the regulations, formal and informal, that guide a consumer market and an industry and a movement and the people who, are, who depend on it to make sure that those are working well. So once you win at the ballot box, once you win in the state house, you have to continue to advance what you want to advance. And a lot of times that's harder. It's really, it's really easy to get people excited about a ballot initiative, though in some places harder than others. It's really hard to get people excited about regulation. I get excited about regulation. I'm a nerd. I'm paid to get excited about regulation. It's really hard to rile people up. But it's incumbent upon you to do that. And if you don't do that, you will fail, period. Because someone else will step in and help write those regulations for you. I'm sure Kevin Sabet would love to. And if you would like to hand it over to Kevin, go right ahead. He'll do it. So that's part of the changing landscape. But um, uh, part, of it, uh, part of also moving forward and really engaging with uh, elected officials, with regulators, with, uh, with media, is uh, taking the approach that you're really smart on this topic and you really need to get smarter. You really need to anticipate what media treatment will be like what a new class of House members or senators are going to mean for marijuana policy, what a change in a party control in a, in a, a, for a governorship or party control in a state legislative body is going to mean for what you, what you want to do and what uh, best laid plans you've had. So you need to pick the best advocates, 
a lot of them are in this room. Um, there are a lot of people who bring to the table a lot of different um, talents. Some of them have no relationship to the marijuana advocacy community, and I think the initial response to that is skepticism. When I started doing research in this area, my first uh, bit of writing on the topic was a report on implementation in Colorado. I'd never written on this topic before. Most of my work is on the presidency and Congress. And probably rightly so, everyone I wanted to talk to about this in Denver and elsewhere were skeptical of me. They didn't know if I was a hack or if I was some investigative journalist or if I was working a different angle. And when you go in and you say, honestly, I just want to learn how well things are going. I study government. They're like, this guy's a lunatic. This is... And so I, I got treated very differently. But for the help of a few people at a few organizations, um, particular, particularly in this town and elsewhere, who were willing to vouch for me, um, I probably wouldn't have gotten in the door. And I think the advocacy community in general is skeptical of outsiders, skeptical of people who haven't worked in this space for some time, who haven't you know, spilled uh, blood, sweat, and tears um, for this movement. And I think that skepticism can be healthy, but it can also alienate people who are really going to help you, communications professionals, lawyers, um, compliance officers, law enforcement who are seeing the light, uh, regulatory um, experts, and others who want to join your movement, who want to work with you, and are going to help take what is an already successful movement to the next level. You also need to hide your worst advocates. And that's a hard lesson, too. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of groups. I've worked in a lot of states. I've met a lot of people in the advocacy community. And I see a lot of people and talk to a lot of people who I think, you know, if any, if every congressman could sit down and talk to you for 30 minutes, their mind might be changed. And then I see others who I think, maybe Jared Polis would become a prohibitionist if he met you. Um, and, and so not because of how they present physically, though I think there's a bias in that, but it's an unfair one, but just the approach, just the tone, the, the way in which you present your ideas um, can be challenging. The benefit is organizations like Normal and others have lobbying training, have advocacy training, and, and those things are important, but at the end of the day, you're going to have bad advocates, and you need to be strategic about it. You need to keep them away from people who you think they may create problems for you. So as much as, it, as important as it is to embrace your best, you also need to be weary of your worst. And that is what is important for any maturing movement. At the same time, and this is a hard one, you need to get to love compromise. Um, you cannot go into these initiatives, whether it's initiative writing or, or statutory writing or working with regulations or working with city councils on ordinances, um, thinking it's all or nothing. Because you know it was all or nothing? Prohibition. And they did pretty well with that for quite some time. But you can easily fall back there if you, um, you know, forsake the, the good for the perfect. There are a lot of initiatives on the ballot this year. I would say all of the initiatives on the ballot this year are imperfect. Part of them are crafted the way that they are because they think it's the best way to get the constituency in that state rallied together to pass reform. That's politics. It's ugly. It's no, it, nowhere is it uglier than in this town, um, but it, it's how things get changed. And so sometimes you have to hold your nose and vote one way or the other. You might be doing that on November 8th for president. 
I don't know where your, where your positions lie on that. But sometimes you have to look at a, a choice, a policy choice, and think about it rationally and less emotionally. And in a community that has fought so hard and has had the institutions of government at the federal and state level work so robustly against them for so long, taking that step back and acting in a less emotional, with less emotional response can be brutally difficult. But it's so important if you want to see that success. And we've seen it in the states that have been able to do this, that have been able to sit down with people and say, listen, we need to get something passed. We need to get it right. I'm not suggesting support something that is a disaster, perhaps the Ohio initiative last year, for instance. Um, but if it's close to perfect, maybe think that it's good enough. And, and like I said, it's, when, when you're a purist, when you believe in your heart that you're doing the right thing and the, the manner in which a system should operate in your eyes is, is the only right one, this is very difficult. But, uh, but again, no one in, uh, very few organizations in this town only strive, or very few successful organizations in this town only strive for the perfect, only strive for exactly what they want. Um, and, and the ones who do usually get screwed. And so that's going to be part of, uh, that's going to be part of the future. The last point is, uh, you know, don't necessarily dismiss bad evidence. There's a lot of evidence that comes out. Uh, smart approaches to marijuana, every time there's a single data point that looks like it's bad for marijuana reform, they send out press releases, they write reports about it, they do that. Um, they, they go a bit over the top with it. But don't just assume that the data are wrong. Don't assume that there's actually a trend line that exists that says the opposite of what Project Sam's reports say. Look at the evidence, think through what it's telling you, and if it does suggest something bad is happening in a state, work to fix it. Don't just ignore it. Don't just turn your back on it. Don't just say it's prohibitionist propaganda. But think about it in a serious way. Because at the end of the day, if that bad evidence starts to stack up and you're not responding to it in an effective way or trying to get the, the powers that be to make the right kind of tweaks to the system to overcome them, then you're going to have a mountain of evidence that suggests that there's a problem and that mountain might be too high to climb. And so thinking about bad, I mean, this is true in, in reform movements. It's true for uh, nonpartisan organizations, too, um, to just, you know, look at the evidence that sounds good and ignore the evidence otherwise. But embracing the evidence as a whole and then trying to make it work for you or make the system work better um, is, is going to be crucial for the, again, continued success of the movement after the ballot box and during implementation and during continued implementation. So now I'll transition on to Congress. This is a much harder subject. Uh, what's interesting is there have been marijuana reform successes um, in Congress so far. We had another one last week. They tend to be focused on medical marijuana, of course. Congress is not ready to deal with um, recreational marijuana. And even though public opinion uh, robustly, a majority robustly supports recreational legalization nationally, um, members of Congress don't think nationally. They think about their congressional district or their state, and support for recreational legalization is not universal um, across the states, or certainly not across congressional districts. And so, but mar medical marijuana reform is. And so, as members of Congress start to think think about this and see the evidence of public opinion on this, um, 
they're going to change their minds. But it's, only, but it's a matter of time. Congress inherently is risk-averse. The risk they worry about is that they're going to lose re-election. And so far, no one has lost re-election because they have uh, necessarily uh, voted against marijuana reform. It doesn't become an issue that hurts them. Um, as time goes on, that will probably change. People will start to be held account in certain states, in certain congressional districts, over their marijuana votes, particularly as industry enhances and grows, as more people fall under um, jurisdictions where it's legal. But trying to convince a congressman, congressman's mind with uh, evidence is sometimes a fruitless battle. They need it beaten into them. They need to see it for years and years and years before they believe it. And, and that, that's a real challenge. But it's a real challenge that you have to have some, some empathy for. Once again, like a lot of people in the public, they were subject to a propaganda campaign for decades. They were led to believe that marijuana was a problem in all corners of society. And not only that, but it was a political problem. That if you didn't deal with marijuana aggressively and with an iron fist, you were weak on crime and you risked losing, uh, losing your re-election. That has calmed some. But again, many of these people have spent decades in Congress, and so they are... This has been drilled into them, and this is all they believe. And until they see evidence to the contrary, until other people who are out there, like Earl Blumenauer, like Jared Polis, like Beto O'Rourke, who are proudly speaking about marijuana reform without any political consequences, they're going to continue to do the same. But as more people show that they can do this and they can get away with it, or even see some success from it, then Congress is all of a sudden going to think, maybe that weed stuff isn't so bad. Maybe if I can earn an extra two or three percentage points in my district, I'll have to raise a little less money, I'll have to work a little less hard. Not that Congress could work much less hard than they already do. But uh, that's, what they're, that's what they're aiming for. And there are more people in, in this Congress who, again, are looking like um, Earl Blumenauer on this issue. Um, they continue to be a minority. They continue to grow over time. With each successive Congress, you can bet that there will be more of them. As people who are in their 80s begin to exit Congress and people who look a little more like me and a lot of people in this room start to enter Congress, those dynamics will change. The type of legislation will change. But all that is to say that uh, Congress does move slowly, but Congress is moving. It's hard to see it sometimes. It's hard to get inspiration from what Congress is doing. But marijuana reform legislation is, is not new. Keith can, told you, can tell you they've been voting on it since the late 70s in some way or another. Stu McKinney from my home state of, of Connecticut, a Republican, um, was a staunch medical marijuana reform advocate. My guess is he was a staunch recreational uh, marijuana reform advocate. And he was, sending he was throwing legislation into the hopper uh, before I was born. And he wasn't getting much of anywhere with it, except, except for one year where he had an odd fluke. Um, but reform didn't pass. He was just getting more co-sponsors in one year than normal. But it was still taboo legislation that no one w wanted to touch. Well, move ahead 30, 35, 40 years, and you get 238 members of the House and 89 members of the Senate voting in favor of extending uh, access to veterans in states that have reformed the law. That's a minor reform, right? It, it, it 
helps a very specific group of individuals on one type of marijuana in the set of states that have reformed. It's, it's in the larger scheme of things, a minor reform. But when you think about it in the broader arc of congressional history on this topic, it is remarkable. It is a majority in both houses, in Republican houses of Congress, being carried largely with Democratic support, but in an institution that does almost nothing on a regular basis. You're getting some success on an issue that 20 years ago would have been radioactive. So that's a good thing. Congress isn't moving as quickly as it should. It's not addressing as many issues as it should, but it's going to get there. And it requires continued advocacy from organizations like yours. And at the, at the end of the day, the import, what a political scientist will tell you is that the difference between public opinion and issue intensity is central to this. So you can have a lot of people who support something, and they support medical marijuana reform. 80, 85% of people support medical marijuana reform. But it's not an intense issue for most Americans. They don't care if their member votes against a medical marijuana amendment because they're worried about the economy or terrorism or health care or defense spending or something else. They're worried about 25 other things other than marijuana policy. But as the issue becomes more legitimate, as people start to think of it in a multifaceted way, is not just about smoking pot, but about something that's about the economy, that's about freedom, that's about criminal justice, um, racial equality, then the intensity of feeling around that issue will grow. And that will also help move, that will help change the minds in Congress, even as the membership in Congress changes in the, in the right direction. So I don't know if you wanted a Q&A session, but I'd be happy to uh, take a few minutes. When we're talking about organizations that are against marijuana reform, um, I recently had a conversation with my local police chief, and we were talking about how things went in Colorado, and he sent me a link from an organization called the Rocky Mountain High um, Intensity Drug Trafficking. Yeah, and I read this report, and... If you just scan it, it looks really bad. But when you look at where the numbers came from, maybe not as bad as it looks. Are you familiar with that group? And can you give me some tips on how to talk with him about that? So I think this is one of those examples where reaching out to people outside of the advocacy community can um, mean real benefits for for inside the advocacy community. So um, the people who crafted that report are very talented statisticians. Um, a very talented statistician can uh, generate a, uh, an analytical report on a set of data that is extraordinarily convincing, but they also know how to manipulate it, too. So um, I have a graduate degree. I took six semesters of advanced statistics. I could jump into these data and make your movement look horrible, too. I know how to do it. Um, I have soul, so I'm not going to. Um, but uh, the point is, you, if you start working with people who have, um, are not necessarily marijuana um, advocates, but are people who understand how to work with public health, public safety, um, highway data um, in, for a living, people who are maybe formers from state agencies who work in that, people in the um, uh, universities within those jurisdictions uh, who have looked at this from either public policy or other economic perspectives. Um, 
you know, bringing them that and saying, hey, how do we combat this? What, what does honesty and what does the, the, the true outcome look like? Those are the groups who are going to help you the most. And so I think one challenge, of course, is if an advocacy organization puts out one report and an advocacy, another advocacy organization puts out another, um, it's like inviting experts in to testify in a case. They just sort of offset, and, and no one ends up, ends up seeing uh, what reality is. But working with other organizations, Colorado's done a great uh, uh, job working with universities within their state. Washington is doing the same thing to try to get at this. Because at the end of the day, for elected officials, if that report was right, it's not. But if it was, John Hickenlooper should be scared to death. So what he needs to do is find out, A, what's the right answer, and B, how do we respond in the most effective way? And I think it's true for elected officials, and it's true for advocates as well. Well, I hate to dominate this, but that's high-intensity drug trafficking areas is run by the drug czar's office. They're prohibited by law from saying anything positive. So that's item one right there on them. And just, you know, they can't, they, that's by law. They have to say that stuff. And you point to that law. So you mentioned in your speech how it's important to experiment with legislation in states. What about for legislation that has actually been seen to work disfavorably towards the state, as, as well as uh, individual rights. Whereas in New York State right now, with Cuomo's legislation on cannabis, we've not only found that has it not only been one of the most restrictive forms of legislation, where going into a dispensary in New York City feels like you're going through TSA, which makes it feel give this symbolic approach that it is still a harmful drug, but also given the fact that this legislation also has so much high capital sort of bureaucratic hoops that only those with financial capital can jump through. And so what we've seen so far has been this foot-in-the-door policy that's been favoring high industrial capitalists, especially from New York City, which isn't anything new with New York State legislative policy favoring New York City over other counties. So um, given my congressional district, how we're having an issue with disadvantaged farmers competing against an over-competitive dairy industry, and we're already seeking new forms of crop diversification so that they can actually have a living, um, even though everything's in place that would justify the facts that bringing hemp, then medical, then recreational, would bring about economic revitalization to a traditionally economically stagnant area, the question is how? Because we've talked a whole lot about, yes, this, and yes, that. But when we get down to the dirty, gritty facts, how do we take that first step towards actually promoting this idea or the change in the ideology within the region? So I think when you're looking at an issue like the one New York State is facing right now and other states as they consider reforms that are seen as imperfect... You need to look at it from two perspectives. One is, would the reform be so disadvantageous or disastrous that it is not worth passing in the first place? Now, I think, as I said before, a lot of people in Ohio looked at the Ohio uh, uh, initiative last year and and thought that was the case, uh, both inside and outside the advocacy community. Um, But in other places, you might look at it and say, listen, this is lousy, but it's better than prohibition. And is the system designed in a way that would also hurt 
um, future changes. Now, in one that's high capital intensive, then, yeah, you can imagine interest groups locking in um, and, uh, you know, industry interest groups locking in and really preventing any kind of reform in the future. That can certainly happen. Um, but in states where the reform is done either through a statute-based ballot initiative or through the state legislature itself, reform is inherently easier than if it's a constitutional amendment. So changing the system in Colorado in a, in a uh, significant way is going to be much harder than it is in Washington or in Alaska or in a place like New York or Connecticut or elsewhere where um, uh, what is affected is actually state statute. So I think your point is a good one. I don't have a single answer for it. Uh, there and, and there isn't a single answer for it in the sense that from state to state, initiative to, to initiative, time to time, uh, there will be some places where you have to throw your hands up and say, no, this is going to create a system down the road that is a disaster, that's going to hurt the movement, that's going to hurt individuals. Um, or you're going to look at it and say, hey, this is, this is a really good step for New York or insert whatever state you're talking about. It might not be perfect. We can try to fix it later. Um, Again, I think that the high capital, um, high capital intensive reforms make that a little bit harder to make those changes later. But also at the same time, you look at a state like New York and you think, how haven't they reformed already? What are the political dynamics in that state that have prevented reform in a state that is extremely democratic and has areas that are deeply liberal? Um, and understanding that all of these work within some sort of democratic and constituency-based framework. And so... If that is the best New York is going to do, I'm not an expert on New York politics, so I won't say it is, but if that's the best New York is going to be able to do, given its political dynamics, then you pick between that and prohibition. We have time, we have time just for one, one last question. I'm sorry. John, one of the troublesome things in Jack Reed's report, and AAA also recently uh, talked about, was the rise in the, in the presence of THC metabolites in the bodies of traffic fatalities. And we know that's not causation, that's just correlation, but it's still kind of disturbing. Is that merely a reflection of the fact that more adults are consuming cannabis, so of course there's more traffic fatalities in which cannabis is found? So from what I've heard about uh, that data point in the report, and you're right, that's one of the most significant changes in the report. Um, there are a couple of reasons why the presence of THC metabolites in the bloodstream in, in uh, you know, fatal car accidents um, are, are up. One is exactly what you said. More people are using marijuana, so naturally there's going to be more marijuana in Colorado bloodstreams. Um, the problem, of course, is they don't measure how much. They measure yes or no on presence. So if you smoked and then six days later, you know, or, or three days later, or a day later, got into a car accident, the marijuana didn't cause that but the presence is there. And so getting a more refined measure of that, I think, will provide um, additional insight. In addition from what I've heard, uh, coroners are looking for it more now. And so, of course, they're going to find it more. And, and so, so that's a problem, too. The other weakness of that data point is there is no evidence, uh, or rather, the data point only measures the presence of THC in the bloodstream of an individual involved in a traffic fatality. A traffic accident with a fatality. Well, it could be in a passenger. It can be in a driver who is not at fault. It can, so um, 
the increase in use and thus the increase in presence in the bloodstream um, is an important point, but it's not necessarily the presence in the bloodstream of the driver at fault in a fatal accident who was under the influence of THC. So I think when you look at those data, they look really bad at first until you start to understand how that data collection exists in the offices of coroners across the state and how weak or how incomplete that metric actually is at measuring the underlying concept that they hope to capture, and that is, are stone drivers killing more people? That's what they want to know, but it's not what they're measuring. And that's a re- it might be what they're measuring, but it's not clear that that's what they're measuring. So it's a really bad measure. Forwarding the cause of legalization and research of the growing cannabis industry, one podcast at a time. The Cannabis Radio Network. All right, folks, that's all the time we got for today's show. In fact, we went, uh, what, almost 12 minutes over the end of the hour, but I couldn't cut off John Hudak. And uh, just a reminder, when he talks about them finding more THC in people's systems, I always like to use the example of the fish in the river. Just because you caught two fish one day and 12 fish the next day doesn't mean there's more fish in the river. You just might have taken a net to the river that second day. It just might have been better weather that second day. You might have used different bait that second day. You might have fished longer that second day. That helps people get it in their heads. All right. We got to call it a day. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with more news and interviews you can use for the cannabis community. For everyone here at CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth.